sat home, and we couldn't, we had trouble getting that through to her that that was the case because she had laid there and just gotten so traumatized. So uh, she clung to those of us who were there like a drowning person for about an hour, and then she began to settle down somewhat. Laura came by the, the CNA, and I think that helped a bit. Uh, she helped calm her down some, but uh, she's gone through a very, very difficult time. So uh, Laura had told me that sometimes when someone like her at her age falls, it can have repercussions for even four weeks uh, of emotional trauma and various difficulties and that her disorientation could cause another fall. And also that she had a couple of, uh, actually you'd call them bed sores, pressure sores from sitting, uh, the way she was sitting, I guess, and the... Uh, I decided to take her over to the clinic in Colorado City and and have an exam and see what they thought was really going on there and get some recommendations because we really wanted to get some home health services in, somebody to come uh, bandage her wound for her and do some of those things in a more professional way. Uh, all of you... Uh, just chipped in wonderfully for many weeks to help feed her and take care of her. But at best, we still are not trained in how to handle someone uh, under those circumstances and exactly what to do and when certain things happen. And we just felt that she needed some help. And that was the main reason I decided to take her over there because you have to get a you have to get an evaluation from a doctor before home health services will even come in. And that was my main purpose in taking her there. Well, then they unbandaged that foot, and the doctor at the clinic took one look at it and said, you're going to the hospital now. I said, do you want me to take her in? And he says, nope, she's going in an ambulance now. And they had an ambulance there within five minutes and had her loaded up and taking her to St. George. So uh, I went on in last night and spent some time in the emergency room with her, and she was having a difficult time. You've, you know some of the chanting and, and uh, crying out and so on that she sometimes did at night, and she was going through that again to some degree, uh, mostly after I left. She was fairly calm while I was there, but they weren't going to have any lab work or any word through the night. Uh, she wouldn't submit to a urine sample at the clinic or at the hospital, and they were having a very difficult time getting that to do lab work and to tell what was going on because she didn't want to be there, and she was making no bones about it. <laughs> so uh, it was a very difficult situation. And uh, they, they allowed her to call me about four this morning, and she talked a bit, and then she was into that, that crying out thing and uh, wanting something to help her go to sleep. So I asked them to try to get something as a sedative to help settle her down so she could sleep. Uh, because of the COVID situation, she's not allowed visitors uh, 
except two permanent visitors. Uh, and they have to have a plastic wristband on to come in and out, and they can't both go at the same time. So there's no way you can go visit her. She is in her own room now, uh, 133. Uh, if, I suppose you can probably call her at the hospital number, extension 133, but, but nobody can visit. <coughs> you can't even wait in the waiting room at the emergency room now. They won't allow, allow it because of the COVID. But under the circumstances, I authorized Charnel uh, to be one of the visitors because she said she could go over after work each day and spend some time with her. She'd already be in town and and could go do that. And then I'm the other one, and I'll try to go in there uh, maybe morning or evening, and Charnel can take uh, early afternoon, evening. We'll we'll work it out between us to spend quite a bit of time with her while she's there. But uh, we can't even change who goes. It's it's that's the way it was with Amanda, my daughter-in-law. Only her son and her mother could go in, and that went on that way for weeks. And then uh, they started allowing her daughters and son to go in one at a time for the day. So they did expand it a bit after some weeks, but. <clears throat> that's the way it is right now. So I'll try to keep everybody as much informed as possible, including her sons, uh, with what's going on. If you have questions, you can send them on the group thread, and then I can answer that way. And, and the questions will probably be somewhat the same anyhow, so we can just let everybody know at once pretty well whatever Unless it's something private or personal or whatever, then you can just you can text or call me separate. But otherwise, we'll try to keep the general information out to everybody. I think we got all the phone numbers right now. I didn't. I had a couple of them that were outdated at first. But here's the situation as far as prognosis so far. Uh, they're taking an X-ray. Charnel got out of this morning. She called me after she talked to the nurse. They're taking an x-ray to see if the infection is in the bone, uh, which could have some bearing on the medical decisions. And I'm not involved at all in that. I don't have uh, legal standing to even get a report from the doctors on how she is, since I don't have a power of attorney. So it's up to her sons. But the doctor at the clinic even said that, after she left, to to me, that... uh, he can't guarantee that she could even keep the foot after he saw it. He says it's it's really bad and uh, that it might have to go and that if it gets systemic, uh, it could even kill her. So uh, I, I say that since it's a pretty serious situation that it might help us in our prayers to God uh, knowing how serious that it could possibly be. I was able to anoint her before anyone came in at the hospital. So that's been done, and and we'll just pray and ask God's will to be done in this circumstance. She is 87 years old, and she's had uh, bad health for a long time, and it's been very difficult. I've been, I've been concerned for, actually for quite a few years, that 
it'd be so easy for her to fall and break something the way she barely got around. And she finally did fall and thankfully didn't break anything, but uh, was very traumatized. So uh, there's no way that that foot could be treated at home anymore. Uh, they'll have to try to, to do that. And if everything works out okay, then after what she's been through, we'll have no problem getting health home health services or possibly even hospice to step in and do the regular daily care. So that that was kind of the goal, but we got to get her got to get her well, more more well and back home before even that can happen. So uh, we'll just pray that God's will be done and that He help her. So that's that's the situation as I know it now. Maybe I can learn a little more this afternoon when I go in. Well, let's get to. Uh, the Bible then for a service. Back to Matthew 5, and now we're down to verse 8, where he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, no man can see God in his glory, <clears throat> and never has, or we would melt on the spot. So, He's saying there that they will be in the kingdom of God, being able to see God as He is, if they are pure in heart. So, pure in heart is one of the requisites, prerequisites in part. Our hearts can never be completely pure as humans, but at least in part we have to become as pure as possible and then made completely pure in the resurrection, and then able to see God. So even with Moses, you know, Christ only showed his hinder parts, and he didn't even let him look him in the face, even though he wasn't in his full glory at that point, uh, lest he be uh, killed on the spot. So let's examine this a bit. Purity is certainly a very, very important issue in the Bible. Uh, the Greek is translated from the Greek word into English uh, three, in three different ways in the New Testament at least. Uh, clean, clear, or pure. So the same Greek word can be used for all of those and uh, clean and pure in that sense, are certainly synonyms, and even clear is a synonym. Uh, I'm not going to go, for the moment at least, and may not at all, too clean and clear, because uh, there's enough references to clean in the Bible, clean and unclean, and other forms of clean that we could go on for at least a year, probably, discussing that uh, from the Scripture. So, we'll... Uh, go with pure and purity and, and so on a bit here and get some input from God, from the Scriptures, about what pure means. When he says be pure in heart, well, what does that mean? Because we know the Scripture in Isaiah quite well. It says that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can grasp it? 
uh, it's that way. So, naturally, normally speaking, the heart is not pure at all. It is full of all kinds of evil and deceit and chicanery and uh, lying and stealing and you name it. The, the human heart is just that way. Self-defense, vanity, pride. You could just go on and on with things that are impure and unclean about a human heart and mind. And you look around the world at what's going on, and that's pretty obvious, I think, of, of what's going on in this world. But we have to be pure in heart. And to do so, we need to understand what that means and set it as a goal so that we can work on it and be sure that our human heart and mind gets transformed from being what we are by nature into what God wishes us to be. Now, we can go through or could go through an awful lot of scriptures in the early parts of the Old Testament about the priesthood and how Aaron and the other priests had to cleanse all their clothes and be sure everything was right. And if it was linen or if it was wool, it had to be done in a certain manner. And then before they could go before God, they had to purify their bodies, uh, get completely clean. Uh, of course, those were physical things, but they reflected a spiritual principle because God wants cleanliness and purity in everything. So he made those rules for the priests to get across the idea that he only wanted that which was clean coming before him. And I think that that's why he made some foods clean and unclean. Because to look at certain animals, they're enough similar that you'd think, why is this one edible and this one is not? Because there are certain things about this one that God made a certain way so that they would not be good for the human body, and he even made the creation in such a way that they had either a cloven hoof, let's say, or a solid hoof, so that we could e easily distinguish between a cow with a cloven hoof and a horse with an uncloven hoof, the horse being unclean and the cow being clean. Now, to look at a horse, you wouldn't think it was unclean. To look at a pig wallowing in manure, you might say, yeah, I can see why that's unclean. But you can wash it off, and they have these little pigs that are pets. They're just as cute as they can be. And why would that be unclean? And a horse is, can be such a wonderful uh, companion and friend and animal and be domesticated, and they smell good even. Uh, I, love, I love the smell of a horse. Uh, so... But it's unclean. So it's useful, as are dogs and cats. They're useful. But they're not clean to eat. So God, even from the very creation, said, this animal you should not eat, this animal you can, so that we could see a distinction. And sometimes we have difficulty with birds... He describes certain ones that are clean and certain ones that aren't, but he doesn't talk about the cud and the cloven hoof, for instance. Uh, 
And you have to study the birds quite a bit to understand which characteristics are there that make them one way or the other. And I never really thought of that about that before, but I think God may have done that on purpose because sometimes we have trouble distinguishing in our minds which way to go at certain times or what is a good thought and what is a bad thought. Now, some, good, some thoughts you have no problem with. It's pretty simple to say that's a good thought or that's a bad thought. But there's a gray area in there sometimes when you're trying to say, how should I word this? What should I say? How would God do it? Now, Christ doesn't lie, but in the parables, he hid the truth, did he not? And he says, I spoke in parables so that they would not understand, because he did not want them to understand at that time. They would understand later on, let's say in the great white throne judgment. But if they understood at that point, then they would be held accountable for what they knew. And therefore, he didn't want them to know and have to hold them accountable until their time of salvation came, which would be during that great white throne judgment. So he didn't tell an untruth. He wrote it in, or said it in such a way that the truth would not be known. Now, people have wrestled with that, and I have at times. Well, what then should I say? There is a time to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet there are times when Christ himself said, I'm not telling you the whole truth. I don't want them to know. So he wouldn't lie, but he would put it in a parable in such a way <coughs> that only someone with his spirit could understand, and nobody else could. So you have to sort through in your own mind when you're asked to answer something, is this something they don't need to know? Should I put it in such a way that I'm not lying and yet uh, still not tell them everything, you know? So there are gray areas. Sometimes you see people that are just completely black and white. It's either good or it's bad. And they have trouble in gray area, and I think we all do to one degree or another, sorting out what should be thought, what should be said, how it should be said, because it is a gray area. And there might even be some things about your life that are, you feel, some people are very private, some people are open books. But if, if you were raised in a family where family matters were family matters and the family was very private, you think that way. So somebody asks you a question and you feel, well, you know, kind of stepped it in my private life here. And you, you, you can either answer that's none of your business or you can answer partially or you can evade it or change the subject. There are different ways you might go, but it's an area where you don't want to lie and yet you don't have to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So, maybe he made some of the birds that way a little bit. 
where it's kind of hard to sort out the clean from the unclean. With the animals, it's real easy. Just a couple of characteristics and that's it. With the birds, you can sort it out. But I still have a question about a couple of things. And even, well, like halibut. There's you a good one. The halibut question. Halibut are generally perceived as clean fish. But I've caught halibut, and I've examined halibut, and I've scraped their sides with a knife. And if there's scales there, they're awfully small, and they're awfully hard to see, and the skin is almost as smooth as a shark. So I have serious questions, even though the Jews think they have scales, I'm not so sure that they do. So I basically just avoid halibut. You know, with a trout or a salmon, real easy to see the scales. But with halibut, yeah, that's a touchy one. I don't know. So, is it clean or unclean? Uh, it's a question. So, I just basically, I love halibut, but I kind of avoid it because I'm not sure that it's good. Some people love catfish, and they're, they obviously have a very smooth skin. Halibut are... I, I can see the question having scraped it. It's, it's, there's a little roughness there, but it's, it's not a real scale, let's say, like you'd be looking for. So, it's a question. So, our hearts need to be clean. Our thoughts need to be clean. Uh, but there are gray areas in our thinking and in circumstances that we have to deal with And I think God did that to us on purpose, because he tells us that we need to learn wisdom, we need to learn understanding, we need to be able to rightly divide the word of truth, and therefore, we have to think about things, we have to meditate on things, we have to determine what is the best way to go, and what is a good path. When there are varying factors there that you're not quite sure how to handle. So it's a part of spiritual maturity, a part of, of learning wisdom in how to handle certain things. And that's kind of a lifelong thing. If it were all just completely black and white, uh, then people couldn't be deceived, okay? It's either this way or it's this way. And God wrote the Bible in such a way, and even said so, that it's here a little, there a little, line upon line and precept upon precept, and you have to go through it and you have to sort it out and you have to put it all together to come up with right answers. And he says, I wrote it that way, so that it wouldn't be just straight black and white and everybody then would be held accountable for anything that went over on the black side. And he wouldn't have room to work with each one toward salvation and put the others off till the millennium or the great white throne judgment. Because it would just be simply clear and yet... The scripture is written, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood, Peter Peter said. 
And he wrote them in such a way that the whole Protestant world is confused about them and don't know how to interpret. So they interpret it the way they like, <laughs> you know. You don't have to have any works. You don't have to keep the law. You don't have to do anything but say, I love Jesus, and you're going to heaven. And they don't even know about heaven and hell. So uh, he wrote it that way on purpose. So all I'm saying here, I guess, is we have a challenge. We have a challenge not only to purify our heart, but to understand and comprehend what is. Let me use the example of Solomon here with the dividing the baby in two. There was some gray area there. And this, this woman said one thing, this woman said another thing, and one of them obviously had to be right and the other one had to be wrong. But they both had made a pretty good case for themselves. So it was a perplexity that he had to sort through and find out what was evil and what was good. And he couldn't tell just on the surface. So he came up with his brilliant idea. Okay, bring me a sword. We'll cut this baby in half and give half to each one since they both have a good story. Well, the real mother obviously says, give it to her, give it to her, don't kill it. And the, the evil one said, okay, and started trying to select which half she wanted, I guess, in her mind. So it became very clear who the real mother was. And thought processes are like that. We have to sort through, and with each other even, we sort through. Um, that's the way it is with human relationships, you know. Sometimes people are lying. How do you know? And they've even written books on how people lie and, and the things that you can look at to determine if they're lying. Sometimes if they won't look you in the eye, sometimes if they look off a certain way, sometimes if they duck their head, uh, they even make lie detectors to try to figure out that somebody's lying and there are even ways to get around that if people know how. So... We deceive our own selves sometimes, and we don't even know when we're lying. Because we've lied so much, maybe, that we've become a pathological liar. And I've known a few people like that. Nearly everything they said was a lie, and they thought they were speaking God's pure truth. They really did. Anything that came out of their mouth and their eyes was the truth. And they would fabricate some incredible tales. And every, everything they said was a lie. But it sounded so good. You know, they, they had a, an uncanny knack at fabricating something out of thin air that sounded right and sounded good and sounded like it actually happened. And you see, Satan is a master at that. And he will use our minds against us. So this isn't a, a small issue. It's, it's a huge issue in trying to get everything right. So God was careful with the priests. Uh, he was careful with the way he created so that we might, from the very beginning, on an easy basis, understand clean from unclean, even in what we were able to eat.
scientists can examine pigs and examine cows, and they won't come up with a reason why one's clean and the other's unclean. But God said they were. So, who do we believe? We take God's word who created them. But these are the ones I want you to eat. These are the ones I don't. Let's go to uh, Numbers 19. I'll, I'll just pick up a couple here of, uh, of examples of what we've been discussing. Numbers 19, and here in verse 12, uh, well, 11. He that touches the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. So they had to go through all of this, and it mentions the water of separation in the next verse and so on, and gives a description in detail about all the things you had to go through if you just touched a dead body, uh, because you were ceremonially unclean. And what does a dead body do? Well, it decays, it rots, it goes back to dust in time. So it's not viable, it's not alive, it's not active anymore. It's gone. And therefore uh, is a good example of something that's unclean because it's going to get worse and worse until it is completely uh, turned to, to dirt. So we use that as an example. Verse 19. The clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day purify himself, wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and shall be clean at sundown. Gives a little more detail. But the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the eternal, the water of separation has not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. Now Christ, of course, in the New Testament, describes himself as the living water, and that coming to him is how we can be cleansed spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and in every way. So it was used back then as a physical thing, and today as a spiritual thing to become cleansed. But to me, it's interesting to see the emphasis that God put on it back here, even in the Old Covenant, just as a, simply a physical thing because there's a spiritual principle involved. Uh, chapter 31, verse 19. And do you abide... Without the camp seven days, whoever has killed any person, and whosoever has touched any slain, purify both yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. And he goes on to say, purify your clothes and all that is made of skins, and all work of goat's hair, and all things made of wood, and so on and so on it goes. Now let's go to Malachi 3. Malachi 3. And here I want... Uh, well, let's start in verse 1. 
Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. So, this is speaking of before Christ returns, and maybe even before he returns to deal with his remnant and dwell with them in Zion, (coughs) even before the resurrection. And the Lord, whom you seek, and we do seek him, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. So he is, at some point, going to come suddenly to his temple. Uh, Certainly, uh, at his return at the seventh trump, uh, he will come suddenly to his temple. And he may come suddenly to do signs and wonders and miracles to draw his remnant and his example to the world as well. So I think that both have significance here. But who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Did you ever have your mother threaten to wash your mouth out with soap? Uh, We learned some words somewhere along the line, even as little kids. And I don't know that I remember my mother ever washing my mouth out, but my aunt would sure do it. You said any kind of an off-color word at all, uh, she had a bar of soap in your mouth. Uh, So soap was used to cleanse my mouth physically (laughs) uh, by my very own aunt, who was a lot bigger than I was. Uh, But he says he will cleanse with soap and with fire. Now, that term, fire, is used a lot. When you go through the prophecies, God talks about how he is going to to send fire upon the earth, and he's talking about (coughs) all kinds of events that will cause death and pressure, and even uh, the lake of fire. Because anything that does not become clean, does not become pure, is therefore impure. And he uses the fire, a lake of fire, as the final way to cleanse anything that will not be cleansed otherwise. So fire will clean up a lot. You can put all kinds of things through a fire and cleanse it. Here he uses a refiner's fire. And he shall sit as a refiner and as purifier of silver... And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the eternal an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant to the eternal as in the days of old, as in in former years. Now, you go back to the beginning of Malachi and go through the book and you see that all kinds of evil are going on within the church and in the ministry. And God is going to purify. So he is doing here, Malachi is projecting to the future uh, from the Old Testament. But Christ is doing here a refining in a similar way to what he talked about the priests and those who touched unclean bodies or murdered or whatever did earlier. But he's using the example here of silver and gold. I think most of us are familiar with the process of 
purifying silver and gold. Uh, they generally come in some kind of an ore, and most of the time they have various metals or impurities in them, and the best way, in most cases, to get those impurities out is in heating them. Now, you have to be very careful, because if you heat gold too much, or silver, it all goes up the chimney and disappears. And sometimes there are certain uh, elements in gold ore that make it very, very complex to refine. (coughs) It's really, really hard to get everything out of it. You've heard of Telluride, Colorado. Uh, They do a lot of gold mining around there, and it's become a rich man's resort. But they have an element called tellarium in their gold ore there. And it is very difficult. When you try to refine gold with with tellarium in it, it tends to take all all the gold up the chimney with it, and it just disappears. That goes into the atmosphere. And you have sometimes chemical processes you have to use. I've worked with them some and worked with heat. And I've seen little beads of gold come out pure. And I've seen things that we could see a little bit or tiny specks of gold in that when you heated it and refined it, it was just gone, out the chimney and gone. So it's complex. And the human mind and heart is complex. But God says he'll refine with fire. And that is generally the best way to purify gold and silver is with fire. Melt the dross away and leave the pure gold and the pure silver. Sometimes you have to put it through more than once. have to cook it more than once under certain different circumstances. And he tells us, that we will be purified through much trial, trouble, tribulation, tests, and difficulties uh, because he wants us clean and pure and he has to put us through an awful lot to get us there, just like you do gold and silver. So he says he's going to do it in that fashion to to get us to that point. Uh, Ezekiel 43 Now, here he's beginning to talk about uh, the latter temple, that one which I believe yet has to be built. Uh, Chapter 43, uh, verse 23, or 25 it is. Seven days shall you prepare every day a goat for a sin offering. You shall also prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish, And he uses that often as a matter of purity. That an animal for certain sacrifices and certain purposes had to be one color, couldn't have specks and spots. And in the New Testament, we're told that we are to be unspotted by the world. So, one color, white represents righteousness in the Bible. So we need all the things of a different color, any kind of thing that is impure or unclean has to be 
taken out of us so that we are totally white. Garments of righteousness. Uh, your, your laundry is a good example. You might have a white shirt or a white towel and it gets dirty. And sometimes it's hard to get it clean. You know that? I have socks I wear around here and I can put them through a wash and maybe they're clean, but they're still brown when I'm done. <laughs> and uh, I guess you have to bleach them and do all kinds of things to get them to actually be white again. So uh, I live with a certain amount of brown. But God wants us, in character, to purge everything that is of color out, just as a symbol. It doesn't mean it's wrong to have colored clothes. He used uh, purples and blues and so on, even in the Ark of the Covenant and in the priest's gear. So it's not wrong to, be, to have the color, don't get me wrong. It's just that when he uses it as a signat- signatory thing of righteousness then it's pure white, like Christ's hair is pure white, like wool. That doesn't mean we ought to all go dye our hair completely white. Uh, It's natural for it to be different colors, and that's fine, and we have variety, and that's good. But when it comes to purity, his is now white. I don't think it was white when he was here on the earth. Uh, I don't really know what color his hair was, but being Israelite, he may have been some shade of blonde or red or brown or or even black. They're all within Israel, but it doesn't matter. But even as we grow older, uh, our hair starts turning gray and then white. And it's a part of the natural cycle that God developed. So even as we grow older physically and become white-headed, no matter our race, doesn't matter, uh, as we grow spiritually and mature spiritually, then our character should do the same thing. So that by the time we've lived a full life, our, our hair will be white physically and our character should be white spiritually. So we don't necessarily need to fight the aging process and try to stay Uh, the same color hair we had when we were young, we need to accept the fact that there's a cycle here and that we're headed toward a physical limit and it has whiteness as part of it. Or maybe baldness. But, But the white comes first. And our character should go from deceitful and desperately wicked to white because white signifies righteousness in that sense. So God has a reason for all the things he did with us. He could have made us live 70 years and never get past age 20 and function and then just suddenly die. But he didn't do that. He made a process where you start young and you grow to maturity and then you grow into old age because... There is a process that he put on the earth. There's a process spiritually we go through. So he he made them similar on purpose. So this had to be a ram or out of the flock without blemish. Seven days shall they purge the altar and purify it, and they shall consecrate or purify themselves. 
And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day and so forward, the priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, says the Eternal. So they had to, had to go, and if we have this again, we may have to do some of these physical sacrifices, not for our sake, because we have Christ's sacrifice, which is absolutely pure, totally unblemished, fully without sin, for us. But as an example to the world, he may have us rehearse some of these things so that they can learn on a very beginning level that we have to go through a purifying and cleansing process. Because there are people on the earth who have very little mental capacity, have very little education, people who are still savages out in the woods and know almost nothing. And you can't sit down and teach them Bible. They have to learn certain things. And he may go back to some of these physical sacrifices and have them performed before them that they might begin to learn some of these things. I don't know why else he would do this, because you and I don't need that. We have Christ's sacrifice. And we understand that it is pure, and it is clear, and it is clean, and it is unsinful, and that's the way he wants us to become. And we're going through that process right now. Uh, let's go to Titus 2. Take this a little bit to the New Testament here already. Titus 2. And here down in about 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearance of the great God and our Savior, Emmanuel, as we call him now. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, all iniquity, completely clean of all sin, and purify to himself a particular or a chosen or a purchased, is probably the best translation, a purchased people zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you, Paul is saying to Titus here. So he brings it right down to this point that we're looking for the glorious appearance of Christ, who is the perfect example, the perfect sacrifice before us. And that... His job is to redeem us from all sin. Uh, we're here to get rid of it and purify himself a purchased people, purchased with his blood. Not peculiar or odd, that isn't what he wants. He wants a purchased people, purchased with his blood, with his life, and who are working at becoming like he is. And... Titus was told to speak about these things because this is a critical issue that we become like Christ. Uh, he wants to live with us. He wants us to be his bride. He wants to be our husband. 
So he wants us to be the kind of wife that every man would like to have. Or the kind of husband, if we're in that role as a human, that every wife would want to have. That's what he wants us as humans to become. So it's a work in progress with all of us. So he told Titus, this, this is something you need to talk about. People need to understand this. James 4. And here we'll have down about verse 8. James 4. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So we have a responsibility. There is a great gulf or a great breach between God and people, and that is sin. Sin divides us. Sin separates us, Isaiah 59, 2, from God. So we are here to work at drawing near to God with the idea in mind that if we will do that, he will draw near to us. So we both work at drawing near together. But God cannot handle sin. I don't mean he's not patient with it and merciful toward us. I don't mean that. But he does not want to live with sin. Therefore, he tells us to draw near to God and cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And humans tend to be double-minded. You and I want to do what God says, don't we? That's what we're here to do. And yet our human nature wants to do sometimes things that are contrary to what God wants us to do. So that makes us, in a way, double-minded because we'd like to do this, and God says, no, do this. So we try to act Christian while we want to act too human. That's just the way that that works. And somewhere in there, uh, hypocrisy can come in because we pretend to be this while we're really that. So he wants us not to pretend anymore, but to get rid of that and become single-minded, to become like him and think like he does. God is not double-minded at all. He doesn't have two standards. We tend to be that way with each other. We're double-minded because we say, ah, there's the standard and you're not living up to it. But here's the standard and... uh I kind of have to excuse myself a little bit. You know, I, I'm i going to tolerate a little bit. I won't tolerate in you, but I will tolerate it in myself. So that makes us a bit double-minded because we're judging somebody else to be less than we are when the sin might be the same. The condition might be the same. might be a different sin, but the condition is still the same. So <clears throat> we have to purify our hearts because we tend to be double-minded, thinking one thing, wanting to be one thing, and being another. And Paul said that about himself, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do, (laughs) you know, that's just us as humans. We know what's right, and yet we tend to want to do what's wrong. Paul fought that. He'd been an evangelist for a long time. 
And yet he still had this struggle in himself. And that struggle will be there as long as we're human. It will never, ever go away because we will never be pure in heart to the point that we don't have some kind of struggle going on. That's just the way it is. So then he says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Be, be concerned about this. Be emotional about this. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the eternal and he shall lift you up. And don't speak evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. So he gets here, he says, let's take this seriously and do what we can to get our minds the way they need to be and humble ourselves before God. So God, in the Old and in the New Testament, is very, very concerned about getting our hearts, our minds pure. And it does not come easy. It is something we all struggle with daily because they aren't by nature that way. So you have to actually change, work at changing the way your mind is working or you are allowing it to work. And draw near to God. And he says if we'll get rid of the impurities, then he will draw near to us. So we have a lot to work at here. And he promises us that if we are pure in heart, we will see God. It's a promise that we'll be glorified and be like him. And he wants us to be that way. So here's a lot to work on today, this week, and for the rest of our lives is to be sure that we are becoming purer in heart as time goes on. But we'll stop there for today.